Brent Ferguson, a new faculty member at PHS as of this year, comes to the school with a unique perspective. To earn his graduate degree, he went to the Princeton Theological Seminary, and yet instead of becoming a member of the Christian clergy, like most graduates do, he became a math teacher. Although math and religion are often seen as at odds with one another, there is actually a long, rich history of philosophical thought that ties the two together. In approaching this conversation with Mr. Ferguson about those theological strands as an agnostic, I learned a lot about faith, humanity, and pretty much everything in between. But no matter what religious background you come from, there's something here for you. I'm Alexander Margulis, and this is the first episode of PHS Talks. Hi, Mr. Ferguson. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, we'll start off with a few general questions so our audience can get to know you. First of all, how long have you been at PHS and what do you teach? Uh, I've just been here four months and I teach a whole lot of calculus, mm-hmm. regular <laughs> AB and BC courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so along with mathematics, you've taught physics and chemistry. Is math your favorite subject to teach? Uh, by far. I love my uh, time teaching science, uh, and that's where I cut my teeth on teaching back in Cleveland, you know, back in the day, almost 30 years ago. Actually, yeah, in the spring, in the fall, it'll be, it'll be 30 years since I started teaching. And there's a lot of toys, like, and you get to, you get to play with things in science, and I love the kind of the practical, hands-on, see it happen, and then whatever. And there's a lot of good opportunities for writing, but I've learned there's a lot of good opportunities for writing in math too. That's something that's changed for me. When I started teaching math and I switched, I was just sad because you can't write about, well, the cart did this when it was on the, you know, low friction surface. There's a lot of opportunities for writing in math. And do you think you kind of came to understand those opportunities better thanks to your time at Kenyon? Because uh, you majored in mathematics at Kenyon, correct? I did. There are um, only five of us in my <laughs> graduating class who majored in math. Um, uh, so there was a, a small cluster. There were like, you know, I don't know, maybe a hundred people who majored in English, you know, at the time, you know, that year. But I, writing is throughout the curriculum. And my, my first intro bio class was like, I was astounded by how much, you know, it's writing paragraphs and short answers and not just filling in blanks and taking multiple choice tests. So I was also out of my league in that math, in that bio class. Cause like, Ooh, yeah, everyone in here had AP bio. And isn't this supposed to be intro? Yeah. So that's, that's for another podcast. So after attending Kenyon College, you go to the Princeton Theological Seminary for your graduate degree. Why do you choose to go there? So just to clarify, that wasn't right after undergrad. So I didn't oh, go from undergrad to grad school. Mm-hmm. I left, uh, I graduated from Kenyon and started teaching physics uh, right away oh. in like 96, um, uh, like an all-boys school in Cleveland. And then I moved to California and taught there. It was after about 10 years, after about a decade of teaching that when I met my wife and I was at a crossroads for myself and thinking about what I would do next and whether or not teach, teaching was the thing that I always enjoyed doing. I tutored when I was a kid and I thought, oh, you know, I really want to be a teacher. Oh, what do I want to teach? Well, like math or science or like, I always thought it liked developing an argument and, you know, so it'd either be in like law or medicine if it was like practical world related. And if not, it'd be like more in just math or science and more practical stuff. So I knew that would be the first thing that I'd give a chance to kind of make myself happy and make a you know, helpful impact in the world. But, um, I mean, when you do something for 10 years and you want to, like, say, okay, this is great, but I could have picked up actually almost any role at all. And I would have probably tried to make it fun and effective and grow. And you always want to be intentional about what you're doing. 
And at that point, I was attending a church um, in San Diego called La Jolla Presbyterian Church. And I had just kind of come back to a different understanding of my faith uh, than I had when I was growing up. And certainly than I had in the like five or 10 years prior when I was in college and early career. So I, I really felt um, called actually to um, deepen my understanding of what it means to be a person of faith in the world, meaning like what it might be mean to be even a leader in the church. And so I attended seminary with the intent of preparing for pastoral ministry. You know, the degree for medicine is MD, the degree for you know, law is the JD, uh, the degree for ministry uh, for, is, is the MDiv, Master of Divinity degree. It's a horrible word because like, who feels that they are a master of divinity? The whole point of divinity is that you recognize I'm a human created being, not a creator, not a god. Um, but it's a funny, funny name of a degree, but a master of divinity. So I got my MDiv, and it's basically like a pre-professional degree for local ministers or pastors. And then why did you choose to go back to teaching? Uh, it's really great that you asked this. So I, I was actually tutoring students from Princeton High School. Lynn O'Grady was a former guidance department chair, and her husband, Jeff O'Grady, was the dean of students at the seminary. And so when Jeff knew that I was coming here, and then Lynn was the counselor here, her son was like a junior, and, uh, and, and his friend was taking calculus, and he was taking like pre-calc, and they're like, we need math help. And it's like, there's this guy. And so I was grad student trying to put myself, you know, reduce my loan debt. I wouldn't say, you know, put myself through school because you still acquire some, but reduce my loan debt. And so I decided to tutor and she, you know, sent her son. And then there were a couple other seminary kids that I started to tutor who are all students here. Gosh, they're all like in their mid thirties now. Like, yeah, I don't want to name I was like, I shouldn't say names. So, um, but from that, People said, oh, I've got this guy. He's a helpful tutor. You know, he doesn't just help me learn the math. He's helping me learn how to learn. You know, I was like, that was the thing. And so I, my whole job as a tutor is to tutor myself out of a job. So Lynn O'Grady connected me to people, and then they connected me to other people. And soon I had, like, a waiting list because I couldn't, while going to school, take on more than, like, maybe 10, 15 hours a week. Eventually I was taking, like, 20-something hours a week and felt like it was highway robbery charging like all of 50 or $60 an hour. I mean, rates have changed. The going rate is now like 150, $100, $100 an hour or something, 120. So as I was reading, there's a particular author, actually, his name is Frederick Beekner, who just died this past year, I think. He was in his like 90s. Super writer, writer of novels and also just kind of modern theological reflection. He wrote that your vocation, your calling is where... Um, your greatest joy meets the world's greatest need. And so, like, I think of a Venn diagram. I think of the intersection of what the world needs is huge. And so what, what, what gives you joy? For some, it's kind of small. For some, it's kind of big. But wherever you find the intersection of those two sets, like, that's, that's what you're called to do in the world. And for me, that was, like, when I was meeting with my, I mean, here I was studying theology, studying, like, you know, Hebrew and Greek and history and pastoral care and all these other things. And I was, like, totally enthralled and I did a, like a clinical pastoral education stint at Hopewell Presbyterian Church and did kind of youth ministry there. I was a chaplain in the Cleveland Clinic in the summer for a year and so did the work of like a chaplain and thinking about how to be present for people when they're 
in grief and, and going through difficult times. I was starting to feel called into roles maybe in terms of chaplaincy. But every week I would meet with this, you know, weekly meetings with my tutoring clients. And I found that what made me energized was being able to help these, these kids uh, figure out who they were and who they were becoming as a math student, as a person. And there was a huge need there. And so when I read Beekner's definition of vocation, like it was pretty clear to me that, okay, yeah, you're getting trained for this thing, but it's for a different way of doing the thing you used to do with the intent not just being to help kids get good grades in math or feel good about themselves in math or find skills and all that, but to help students literally become themselves. Like to think about, to help kids figure out who they are, who they're becoming, and their role in that process. So I think seminary helped me reframe my initial goals. My, my field of ministry isn't like people in the church that I preach to. It's my yeah. students in my care and how I care for them is part of how I exhibit my kind of ministry in the world in terms of helpfulness to people and how I show my love. Yeah. Uh, and do you think your experience at the Princeton Theological Seminary changed the way you look at math in of itself? Because... I think there are a lot of interesting things to be said about the intersection of math and of religion, which is something that perhaps many people would assume aren't that closely linked. Uh, do you want to talk about that in terms wow. of your own experience? Yeah, again, there's like a particular like person and moment that's helpful, and then there's some general ideas. So I'll, I'll try to touch on the person first. Dr. Allen, Diogenes Allen, so glad to have had him as a teacher. He, he teaches a course in philosophy. He taught, taught a course in philosophy at the seminary called, um, it's a really cool word, prolegomena to theology, like um, prologue, like the, 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 the kind of philosophy for understanding theology. So I learned a lot of philosophy in that course and in the course that followed. And it started to get me really thinking. Philosophy, I think, is right there at the intersection between math and religion and, and theology. Um, religion, religion and theology are different things. So I'll, I'll say it's at the intersection of kind of like you know, it, it, philosophy is between, you know, theology and math, I'd say. They both have their connections in philosophy. And I think I started to think a little bit more about epistemology. Like, how do we know what we know? The theory of knowledge, as you could call it. And the question we, we, we associate in, in our world, like math and science is like a thing. And then humanities is this other thing. When in fact, math and science could not be looking at truth more differently. In math, it's all this kind of rational, theoretical, like Plato, the world of forms and ideal stuff. And in science, we look at how we know is by like making concrete observations about the world. And then if you do it over and over and over, just by data, probabilistically. So here it's more like this rational mind. And over here, on the other hand, it's more about this experiential, because I've seen this, I guess it's true. If I see it 17,000 times, I'm like, okay, let me up. I've had enough evidence. I believe, I believe it is true. Not because we've proved it. We prove things in math. But we come to trust increasingly these other things by experience. And so I started to think about, like, how do we know what we know theologically? I think that's where we start to we start to think about you know what are the what, what in what ways there's this word faith, and so I think we're going to start to make that shift now in the conversation. There there are areas that, that we would say are areas of confidence, and areas where we would say are areas of commitment, and then there's areas that are still areas of great mystery, even if you have confidence or commitment. And, and that's kind of where faith lives, I think, is where we have trust 
even if we can't prove it from a rational basis or that we can't um, experience it in the same ways that we experience material truths, but that we experience kind of relational and spiritual truths. Yeah, and on that topic of not proving it, there's actually some really interesting parallels with some fascinating logical work that's been done with mathematics. So I'm sure you're familiar with Kurt Gödel's incompleteness theorem, which basically states that in any axiomatic system, so in any system of mathematics built on axioms, like zero is a natural number, or two plus two equals four, there are some things that are true, but that are fundamentally unprovable. And there's a really interesting quote about this by John Barrow, uh, who says that if a religion is defined to be a system of ideas that contains unprovable statements, Gödel taught us that mathematics is not only a religion, but it's the only religion that can prove itself to be one. So do you think math is a kind of practice of faith? Uh, and do you think your religious experience have helped you have faith in math and find a way to plug up the hole that is like logically inherent in all of mathematics? There's a lot in that question, so I'm going to do what I can, and I probably won't answer them all. Gödel's incompleteness theorem is, I think, super helpful in showing that even when you try to have this rational axiomatic structure, it will inherently fail and be self-contradictory. That was like totally mind-blowing, and it put Bertrand Russell's project to kind of like shore up the philosophical underpinnings of math, not just on its heels, but it's like the death knell. It's like it made it made it impossible for one of the big problems of the new century to be proved. There's now the millennium problem. So these were problems from like. They're called Hilbert's 10 big problems. And one of them was this axiomatic system they tried to develop. I think, and it, it kind of signaled the beginning of postmodern thought, actually. It's like, all, every, all truth is relative, nothing can be proven. And it's, it, it doesn't do that. Like you said, there are things that we know to be true, even if we can't prove them. And so it doesn't kill math, and it doesn't kill confidence and trust and the reliability of our thoughts. But it does, it, it does put it in a, just a more humble and like unassuming state. I think I would not call math a religion. I think it's nowhere close because there are things that we, everything that we do in math rests on how you define something and then the things that you assume to be true without proof that you call like axioms or postulates. But based on certain axioms or postulates, you can then build up from those things that you assume to be true things that are absolutely have to be true based on those definitions and postulates. That's not what um, the incompleteness theorem addresses. It says that the axiomatic system kind of will, will turn in on itself and those won't be provable or in, con, internally consistent with each other. It still is an extremely reliable system of knowing for sure with proof and beyond doubt. Like, a method of doubt by Descartes. It's like it is really truly a method that eliminates any doubt at all that something is true based on these other previously assumed or proved truths. Faith is totally unlike that. And I think religion in its role to faith is just the way of understanding that we are social creatures and that all, I mean, there's people that, I think there's a very, very difference, big difference between spirituality and religion. Um, but I think there's there's this myth that you can be kind of spiritual without being religious, which I actually also don't think is true. Um, a lot of people will check that box. You know, I, I go to this church or I go to this synagogue or I go to this mosque or I go to this, I worship with these, um, you know, folks. 
or I'm, I, I, I'm, I'm my own self, you know, I'm, I'm above that, I'm spiritual but not religious. I don't want to poo-poo that idea because it, we all do have our individual uh, theologies. Everybody has a theology, whether they know it or not, whether they're articulated or not. You have a, a way of thinking about the material and spiritual realities in the world. But you can't be spiritual without being, I'd say, social. And, and religion is just gathering together in an organized way to sort of like, to say like, how are you doing? And what are you thinking? And how are you feeling? And what, what you know, what were your thoughts? You know, how, where's God been for you this, this week or whatever? There's, I don't think there's any way to continue to be spiritual without connecting with another person on it. And so I think a life of faith is built on a mix of trusted sources, which includes story. I mean, here we're getting into literature, and the power of the truth of fiction and the truth of a story. Something can be true. There's nothing truer than fiction. And there's some, whenever you try to tell a nonfiction thing, you'll be taught it from a particular standpoint. So all history as written will be untrue because it's, already, it's told from a perspective of, of an author. But everything that you write that's fiction is absolutely true. Because it's built within this theoretic place, and it's true for that, that character and that person. That, they, they created it, so it is absolutely true in that context. It's kind of a weird turn on that. But I think in stories of faith and religion, there are stories that get handed down, that either that have value and resonate or not. And so I think my experiences in the world are important, so I would go with the experiential. I think that my rational thinking apparatus that I use for math and philosophy is important, and I use that. That's, that's kind of called theology. And then I also think about the ways in which the story of my life and the story that gets told about this, the continuity over time with this other historical community that lives in this time across space and in this place across time with respect to religion, meaning the story that gets handed down within my particular faith yeah so i don't know if i don't know how much of your question i really answered yeah i i think that does a good job of answering i think in general though i'm curious about when you're coming at math from a religious uh i don't want to say perspective but mm-hmm. a background with almost. that lens yeah yeah how does that change the way that you are viewing it and that you're relating to it for example if you look at i think leibniz or newton who were mm-hmm. theologians mm-hmm. as well as mathematicians the way they like address the concept of infinity, for example, mm-hmm. came from a very religious perspective. Do you think? And Ramanujan as well, mm-hmm. within his religious tradition, he approached the idea of religion with with, with a great deal of wonder and awe. And yeah. So there, yeah, that is. I have an appreciation for what we call the mysterium magistrum, like the the big mystery, the big the big. I can't ever know what I'm gonna. That doesn't mean I shouldn't seek to find out more and as much as I can within this time that I have or within this context of this topic. I think I appreciate that differently, having studied, you know, religion or having studied theology. And that helps me approach math with an appreciation to beauty, with an appreciation to noble and unknoble. Um, Like infinite, there's so many interesting things about infinite series that are, kind of mind-blowingly self-contradictory at times and that we still have to hold those in tension. There's this truth and then there's this other truth and they don't match. And we can, there's this always this like 
don't know, they call it a dialectic tension, right? Between like the classic and theology is God is loving and it's like God is all powerful. And then there's this third thing. It's like there is suffering in the world. Wait, how can these things all be true? And that's like the problem called theodicy. That is, we have to kind of hold some of those intentions we want to describe and seek to figure out what might be true about this. That doesn't mean that it's inherently untrue, but it means that we have work to do. Here, the microphone unfortunately did not pick up on Shimona Bhattacharya, an observer of this conversation, but she made a very interesting point. She said that at the end of the day, some people believe theologians and mathematicians think the origins of the universe are essentially the same, especially when it comes to religions like Hinduism, where religious texts refer to the sound of the universe as something akin to strings. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you'd have to include, like, um, string theory, right, with... um uh when you when you talk about you know strings and truth and like over, an overarching theory of 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 how everything relates yeah it's funny because a lot of these people have local stories ramanujan didn't come as far as as here he came to cambridge but Gödel studied at the institute uh, advanced study and sorry string there's string theorists there holding his chair right now a really famous like probably going to win the next nobel prize in physics if we ever you know it is at some level or whatever if they ever give it to somebody studying that area it would be to you know dr maldasena there's like people working on these big questions about how does the world work the way it does and yeah i mean we get glimpses uh, there's a really wonderful book called the housekeeper and the professor by yoko ogawa um, and it got made into a movie called The Professor and His Beloved Equation. It's the professor there who loses his long-term memory says he gets a peek inside God's notebook. That's what he feels like the math does. It's like there's hints. It never fully reveals, but it gives, there is revelation. And there are instances of partial truth that we see through certain series or certain results or certain things. And I think Ramanujan had a big peek inside God's notebook and copied some of it down and shared it with us in these two notebooks that are now, you know, at the library there in Cambridge. Earlier, you said something about seeing the beauty in mathematics thanks to seeing it through a religious lens, is I think the phrase you used. And I want to wrote back to Bertrand Russell, who I think you talked about earlier as well, the British philosopher and mathematician who said that the mathematical world possessed, quote, not only truth, but supreme beauty, a beauty cold and austere like that of sculpture without the gorgeous trappings of painting or music, yet sublimely pure and capable of a stern perfection such as only the greatest art can show. So I have two questions here. In what way is math art and in what way is art divine? Oh, man. I think math is art to the degree that math is like craftsmanship. So there's like there's with both art and with math, there's tools and techniques that you have to use, and using the right one at the right time is part of the knowing how to accomplish your goal and uh, get to a solution of a problem in math, or to get to like create that thing or that that poem or that sculpture or whatever. You have to have craftsmanship. Some of the most beautiful works of art, like Brunelleschi, you know, like the Dome over in Florence or whatever, the Duomo. They needed engineering and mathematics to be able to create that beautiful structure. And the beauty of it is in the physics and the engineering and the math. So like craftsmanship and those techniques and like elegance are a part of all those. Like simplicity is a part of both all of those. And 
this connects to a big idea that I think I, I think people have a misunderstanding both of of all topics, like certainly religion and art and, and math and so on. But people think that you either are or aren't like a, a mathy person, or are or aren't an artsy person. Or some people think you either are or aren't like a religious person. And I think all of these things can be developed and grown with the right kind of experiences, like over time. And, and it's not just that you need to learn how to be set free so that you can be wild. It's there's quite a bit of that. You don't want to inhibit people by drilling in. I think that. Typical example I would cite here for math is you know drilling Kumon over and over and over and over. It like inhibits your capacity to leap out of that box the more you drill and you get those ruts. Although at some level we still practice scales and we practice layups and we practice like factoring equations. We, we do have to routinize some things, but only to the degree that it gets helpful and before the point where it gets limiting. And so like there's this there's the tension of growing in like skill and craftsmanship by using these tools and having those tools sharpened and well-oiled and that you know how to be safe with them and use them at the right time. And then also the like always learning new tools or inventing or making your own new tools. And I think that's what you do in math as an artist is you like there's a new I have I don't have a tool for this. So I need to like notice some pattern and create a way to think through this in a new way and, and kind of create new math to manage this situation. And that's where I think art and math are similar. To what degree is art divine? To the degree that conveys like truth and beauty, or that it points towards a reality that maybe we couldn't have seen without it. Yeah. Are there any mathematical concepts that do that very clearly for you. I think I've heard you talk about the fourth and fifth dimensions before as kind of almost allegorical to religious concepts. Yeah, the story by Abbott called Flatland hints at this by saying there are ways beyond our, be our seeing and our knowing. That doesn't mean they don't exist. People can't really visualize the fourth dimension super well. That doesn't mean that our life isn't four-dimensional. This absolutely is like three-dimensional with time. That's four dimensions. But there are also other ways in which we are experiencing a kind of material, spatial, temporal world. And there's so much more to reality than that and to truth than that. I've seen it. I've felt it. I, we all kind of have these like spiritual moments, whether we recognize them as that or not. These like feelings in our gut and these like, understandings that don't have a source yeah so i i love the um the pythagorean theorem just comes up over and over and over and over again in so many different ways and convergent infinite series are are kind of kind of sweet and beautiful i think the the organization of of, of number structure as it develops as you go through the the integers is really pretty special actually and the unique factorization theorem I really, really love the fundamental theorem of calculus and how it conveys a truth that's mathematical but also points to other truths as well. On kind of like a rough segue from the Pythagorean theorem into Pythagoreanism, which mm. is one of the first kind of almost religions that was associated directly mm. with math. So along with some interesting beliefs about reincarnation and the transmigration of souls, Pythagoreans thought that like all of reality, so psychology, music, astronomy was mathematical in nature and could, which was perhaps undermined by Gödel later, but could be mm -hmm. proved and put into mathematical 
mathematical proofs. To what extent does that ring true for you? Yeah, so the Pythagoreans are an interesting group, and, but I think they are, like you say, emblematic of a religion. I mean, it was one of the first um, kind of documented, like, let's hold this thing up as value among above all else. Whatever it is that we hold more important than anything else is our object of supreme worship. And if that's ourselves or if that's, you know, our, our, our concept of tribe or, you know, nation or family or whatever or money, or, you know, mammon or um, friendship, wh whatever it is that we, wor we worship that thing, everything else is subservient to that. So, I mean, at some level, the Pythagoreans held up number as supreme. And by number, they meant integer. They, they they started like they didn't start but they they definitely developed this like great like uh, veneration of, of numbers and they actually put to death one of their members I mean the story is they don't know if he was like pushed off and made to drown or was made to walk into the water into the Aegean Sea but you've heard of the story of Hippasus I actually haven't okay so Hippas so they thought that everything is one of their like I mean. These ideas of like you're in or you're out or you're believing wrong, so we're going to kick you out of the club is they're, they're as old as time. Um, and so like they believed that everything was number. And so when Hippasus proved that you can't express the diagonal of a square with side length of one as a ratio of two other integers, it is not a, what we would call a rational, which for them was like all the numbers. Every number is rational. Every number could be expressed as you know, some sort of rational number. They didn't realize that irrational numbers, they didn't even have that word. So when he was like, well, this number, let's call it D, and then he you know, showed, you know, like developed this really brilliant proof. And we could do this with a number theory proof now, with a geometrical proof. There's all sorts of cool things to do with that. Because it's a really important moment where you're like, you've just, pro you've just proven something and you've shown us something that's uncomfortable for us. We are so uncomfortable with this. This doesn't mesh with our way of seeing the world. Ah, you, you must die, you know? And you're like, what? So like kind of what happened to that guy in Flatland is like, you know, and now you will perish in Lineland. It's like when people get confronted with something that doesn't fit their worldview, it's deeply unsettling. I'll be honest, we see that in politics. We see that in students. We see that in, with teachers. I mean, when there's a way of being successful and then that gets disrupted, that's not always easy. And it might be easy to say, well, then I'm the problem and I'm not smart at math, when it's not true, they might be, or you're not a good teacher, or that person might be, or this book is crap and it might be good. It's like there, there are ways in which we will look, we will, we will reject something because we need to keep consistency in our world. And like people go to great lengths to keep consistency in their world. On the topic of things that might not be consistent with your beliefs about mathematics, I'd love to real quick talk about uh, intuitionism. Okay. So the Dutch mathematician L.E.J. Brouwer in the early 20th century kind of originated the idea that mathematics is not the discovery of some fundamental universe-binding rules, but instead it's just a creation of the mind. And therefore, teaching mathematics, like you as a mathematic teacher, are just trying to help spur the same mental processes that are creating these abstractions in different minds. So one of the ways he proves this is by saying that, for example, the only way math works is as a function of temporal understandings. So we create a temporal relationship between one and two, and then we extend that to two and three. And then 
all of our mathematical symbols are just ways to talk about experiences of those temporal moments. So this might make a little more sense in the context of infinity. So he's saying the only reason we can understand infinity is because we can link one to two and two to three, and we can theoretically extend that kind of temporal association between those two numbers coming after each other into infinity. And temporal meaning like almost time. like time, yes. like one, two, like seconds. Yep. And then like, well, then if this time for eternity is then our yes. best understanding of infinity. Yes. Okay. Uh, and it's also the idea that because each moment has to be tied together by some amount of time, and the way we understand it is through this fourth dimension of time, that mathematics can't adequately explain the fundamental laws of the universe because it operates in a way that is kind of ambivalent to anything other than the temporal relations it's already created. Which so, might not make a lot of sense, but I personally think mm-hmm. intuitionism is a little silly. Uh, I, I, I yeah, go, I don't want. To, yeah, no worries. But if if you're deciding that mathematics represents something fundamental about the universe from a religious perspective, does that limit the philosophical understandings of mathematics itself that you can have? I, I think I think this guy. Uh, it, it, it doesn't make what he's saying is it, what his claim is is that math must be linked to temporal and, the, and what's really true is it can be linked one way that we can see evidence of math being visible and you know and see, think, see, thinking of eternity is eternity that's not the only way that we can imagine infinity though it's just, it's just a vehicle and so like that something can help doesn't mean it's the only way to do it I just I disagree with the premise of the question at some level, but I think what I when you said you know since you come to math with a theological lens, I want it to be augmentative, not substitutive. It's not the only thing that I do or learn, but it is something that could be um, useful or helpful, like time is for his analogy there. But not the only way to see it. Uh, I want to ask you two questions. I'll ask one and then I'll ask a follow-up. So I want to ask them at the same time. Um, But first of all, will computers get to a point where computers, A, could have done everything humans have already done mathematically, and B, will replace humans as mathematicians? I'm going to refer back to another question that you had. Mathematics is partially craft and art. And I don't think it's likely. Actually, I would almost say I don't think it's possible, but I'll I'll just say at least for now, I don't think it's likely that any kind of computer machine could, a computing machine, it's basically really good at adding, you know, ones and zeros, could, could do math in that way, could do creative math in that way. Yeah, I guess I'm talking... Could compute things that they're programmed to do, but not to, to not to do mathematics, which is different. I guess I'm talking more about artificial intelligence here, and even mm-hmm. the idea of general intelligence, that eventually we can create a machine... That learns. That learns, not only learns, which you've already done, yeah. but that is able to approach any problem you give it through new and like almost creative ways. And... I suppose to some extent that's possible that relies though. If that does happen, doesn't that prove that 
humans are just made up of neurons firing? No. So the degree to which a computer could do that is limited by the program that creates that computer. So there's this thing called gradient descent. And that in AI, that's like a program saying, oh, this is working. But just to make sure, let me migrate a little bit over here and see if the slope of that line makes a more optimal result happen. If I, instead of going in the direction I'm going, go in a different direction. And it kind of has occasional random jumps just to check in with itself to make sure it's not following down some good looking, you know, beautiful but dangerous path, you know? Um, and so, but the, you have to program it to do that. And you have to program it to do that in a certain way. And anything that you would do to decide how it does its thing to learn then could like, I guess you could, yeah, I, I don't, it's, it's, it's tricky to know That'll always be limited by what you, computers will always be limited by what you tell it to do, even as they learn, as they learn how to learn. You, you're still teaching them how to learn how to learn. I mean, you know. Yeah. Um, from, from my understanding, there's literature out there right now, which is writing pretty persuasively that everything we've already maybe uncovered, maybe created yeah. about mathematics yeah. could be done by an AI system that humans will build. If you assume that to be true, does that change your view on how mathematics and religion intersect if even computers, and which aren't explicitly programmed how to do mathematics, could still create what we've created? Yeah, no, there is an animating spirit in each of us that is different. We are more than a collection of neurons and chemicals and, you know, electricity and things like that. I just, I, we need a spark. Yeah. Uh, even if we are a lot of like, you know, there's a thump, 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 and, a, you know, electricity that's flowing and we need something to st start that motor and, but then even keep it going. Like a car, you know, has fuel and we get fuel and the car keeps going with its electricity because it consumes gas and it converts it to electrical energy. Like I get all that, but like, and that spark, I guess when that spark dies, to compute the metaphor, then that's when we die, right? And so, like, I don't know, that's, there's something that that animating spirit is more than just electrical signal, though. And there, I, I believe in the, in the existence of, like, a, some sort of spirit. Yeah. And people call it a soul or yeah. whatever, but, like, that, that will separate, you know, people from, from robots. kind of end things off here yeah. and ask a rather deep question. Okay. Uh, so there are a lot of ways to look at that spark, which I personally agree exists, mm -hmm. that don't rely on some higher power, like French existentialism comes to mind, mm -hmm. uh, other kind of philosophical outlooks that put free choice without the existence of kind of a religion behind mm -hmm. it. So what for you, and this has nothing to do with mathematics, mm -hmm. um, but what kind of convinced you per se to hold the religious beliefs that you have hmm. i was going to share this earlier but I, I demurred to share it earlier but i think it's helpful to share now um we have these inherited stories and the fact that that story has is like you know called the greatest story ever told or whatever you know like that, that story has continuity and it's been told and then retold and retold is the actual story of an actual person's life and that that, that, that we can 
trust only to a certain extent, but that we can trust for certain aspects or truth or whatever. Like that's important to me. So I, I trust the story, first of all. I also uh, believe my experience and my experience confirms that story. So I, there's, this, there's a song, right, in, in, in Christian kind of, you know, like churches. Um, it's this really straightforward, simple song. It's, it's called Jesus Loves Me. Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. And I always, like, braced at that, 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 that line because I'm like, do I, do, I, do I know and trust this just because the Bible tells me so? Like, heck no. Like, come on. Like, I, I can't just trust that. Like, you could write another book and it would tell you something else. You're like, oh, I guess I should believe it because the book tells me so. Like, that seemed lame to me. I'll be honest. Like, it's horrible as a person of faith to say that at some level. It's like, oh my gosh, that's like the simple children's song. But it's like, I think there's great truth in that song. Um, but there's, I, I had to, I like rewrote the lyrics because I felt like I don't um, think that that's all there is to say on this topic, right? And so um, there's all, there's multiple verses in it, you know, um, so I, I wrote, I said, Jesus tells me this, I know, um, he is with me where I go. I like, I feel his presence. Right. So, um, and then I thought of the themes that you see in like biblical and theological themes, like, um, which is trust in God, um, confront the wrong, um, live in joy and sing this song. And so I said, you know, I believe in, you know, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus, he's with me where I go. I feel God's presence through the spirit of Christ, through in me at different times and in different ways. And I feel that palpably and I have experiences that confirm that. And so my experiential knowledge tells me that what I'm supposed to do is to trust and to grow in my trust of the other. The trust of the other in my midst is how I grow to learn how to trust the other, capital O, other in my midst. I learn what love is from the people around me, my parents first, but then others around me. And that's just but a hint, but an important way that I should learn about how to receive and be grateful for the love that I get that I can't even imagine that's big, better and bigger than all I understand. Like, so all of those I think are embodied in this. Like I grow in trust and the things that I'm supposed to do, everything is in life is rehearsal. We're always getting feedback and learning for the next thing. And so as we're like learning creatures, we're learning how to grow and we're learning how to learn. And mostly we're learning how to trust and we're learning how to love. And so I hope to grow in courage and, you know, curiosity and gratitude and my generosity over time. But I do that from the experiences that I have with the specific goal of learning how to demonstrate the love that I've been given that I, I didn't earn and didn't necessarily deserve, but like that I feel grateful for and that I just want to share. Like that's my my purpose in life is to, is to love those around me. And I mean, I, I, my, my evidence that I'm already loved is like all around me if I only look hard enough. And so, yes, because the Bible tells me so, but also because I, I feel God with me where I go. And so I think I answered your question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, you know. From the slightly biased perspective yeah. of a student in your class, yeah. I think you make that kind mm-hmm. of attitude towards learning and loving simultaneously very mm-hmm. explicit in the way you deal with mathematics and deal with the teaching of mathematics. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really appreciated by your students as well. It really means a lot to you say that. I, yeah. I, I'm glad it's evident. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for asking. Appreciate it. PHS Talks is a part of the multimedia section of The Tower, Princeton High School's student-run newspaper. It is written, produced, and edited by me, Alexander Margulis, with music by Otto Truman.
Thank you, and we'll see you next time.